politics without the soap opera with unfiltered constitutional conservative truth. The Conservative Review with Daniel Horowitz. And welcome back, fellow American patriots and scorned American taxpayers, the one and only Conservative Review podcast, your only source of truly independent conservative thought, independent from any of the two ridiculous political parties or even any political figure. Folks, we are riding high today. We are riding high on data, knowledge. We're going to have a great guest coming up soon. But I just want to get to something before we get to our special guest, Dr. Andrew Bostom. Um, he's an epidemiologist, really special show, really delving in depth, the virology, the epidemiology, what's going on. But I just want to comment first on what's going on with the anarchy in this country. You know, you look at the tyranny and the anarchy, the push to lock down our country, the lies about the virus and how potent it is and how much human input uh, matters. And then you look at the rioting, the tearing down of our culture. It, it almost reminds me of like World War II where you got the Japanese front and the European front. I'm trying to see where to put my research, my forces, my contacts. You got the border crisis where we're, we're, pumping in sick patients from Mexico to spread the virus here, a deadly version of it here, and then they're locking us down for it. But I think one story I just want to mention that brings everything full circle is this story out of Oregon. And I'm sure a lot of you have seen it. Lincoln County, Oregon, has exempted non-white people from a new order requiring face masks being worn in public. Um, this is from the New York Post. Health officials announced last week residents must wear face coverings in public settings where they may come within six feet of another individual who's not of the same household. But people of color do not have to follow the new rule if they have, quote, heightened concerns about racial profiling and harassment over wearing masks. Folks, this is where the tyranny and anarchy come full circle. Where this is not about science, it's not about health, it's not about prudence, it's not about public policy. We live in a racialist society, culture, and government now that if you are of the right ilk in their mind, something is not a problem anymore. Even what became a cult of fear and panic. So the virus is a pretext to destroy our lives, but only certain people. You want to riot? That's fine. You could gather in the thousands. You want to come over the border? Well, that's even more sacred than stopping the spread. And oh, by the way, masks are like a new cult except if you happen to be a person of color. By the way, what is it with this person of color thing? When I was growing up, I always thought that's the term they used like in Jim, the Jim Crow South, like a colored person. Since when did we talk like that? It's just bizarre. So is that going on? Another, another important piece of news last night, Thomas Massey, the man who stood against the lockdown, the stupid legislation that bankrupted us and legitimized and funded This lockdown allowed governors to push it on the cheap. He won with 88% of the vote, despite a well-funded challenger. And Trump um, saying he hopes Massey loses. Look, Trump was wrong on him. Trump was wrong in supporting Riggleman, that rhino congressman who lost his primary in the Shenandoah Valley area. Hopefully, he'll be wrong on Sessions as well. But I want to get to our next guest. So folks, Andrew Bostom... MDMS, he's an associate professor, family medicine at Brown Universities in uh, Providence, Rhode Island. Dr. Bostom is a trained clinician. He's an epidemiologist, a clinical trialist. 
He has a 30-year academic medical career that's focused largely on cardiovascular disease risk assessment, prevention, rehabilitation, um, especially within the chronic kidney disease patient population. He's got a lot of um, scholarly writings on that as well. Um, believe it or not, he's more well-known in the public, at least politically, for his work on radical Islam and jihad. You could go to Amazon and look up Andrew Bostom. You could see his uh, works on that. He has several books and published material on that as well. Um, we might have to get him back on the show to talk about that. But the last couple months, he's really applied his knowledge to this. And it's 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 tough because the field is very broken. We see with these epidemiologists, a lot of them are completely political. Um, so this is someone who was able to introduce his expertise to our side of the story and help us um, with some of the observations, some of the science behind this. You could follow him, must follow on Twitter, at Andrew Bostom. You could also go to www.andrewbostom.org to see his blog and his you know his writings. Some of them are a little bit you know dense for, for a layman, but they are definitely worth looking at if you want to get the truth on COVID. With no further ado, Dr. Bastam, thanks so much for joining us today. Thanks for having me on, Dan. All righty, doctor. Um, let's start it off broadly. Where do you see we are in terms of the epidemiological curve right now? It seemed like we were kind of over it. The deaths really plummeted. Not too many people were dying. A lot of them were even backfilled. But now it's all over the news. People are seeing a resurgence a second wave or a quasi second wave cases are spiking in some States, even hospitalizations are going up. This is the end of the world. As we know it, we need lockdown 2.0. What is your view on the state of play now? Well, I, I, I think, um, first of all, the, the deaths, uh, at this point, mercifully, uh, are not going up, certainly on a national basis. There may be slight upticks in, in some of these uh, areas that you mentioned, particularly near the Mexico border. Um, but even there, it's very hard to see any sort of a consistent trend. And, and, re and remember, Daniel, these, these, these places have been partially reopened or opened for, for a long period of time now. If there was going to be sort of a, 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 a lot a, a reopening phenomenon, we, we, we should have seen it by now. So I, I think other things may be going on in terms of, you know, cross border traffic. Uh, um, I, I think, you know, you, you've actually done some very good uh, reporting on that. And I think that's a very plausible, uh, testable hypothesis. If we, can, if we can get them, if we can get the border area hospitals in Arizona, Texas, et cetera, to, to, to honestly reveal their data, and you know, we, we might be able to see some of this. But, but, but overall, the, the, the bigger picture has not changed as far as I'm concerned, which is that uh, as this epidemic marched across uh, you know, China, Europe, and reached the United States, uh, we see we see the same phenomenon we've seen everywhere else, which is that it burns itself out, which is very consistent with with these uh, epidemics, pandemics. Um, and, it, and, in flat, and in fact, you know, I know there's been this whole taboo not to discuss this in terms of uh, influenza, but more and more um, coronaviruses like influenza viruses cause a, anything from a cold sort of flu syndrome to severe pneumonia. So it's on the same spectrum. It's it's increasingly behaving. Uh, it's full behavior pattern is really getting very much like 
um, in some cases, even seasonal influenza, in other cases, more serious, you know, pandemic, epidemic uh, influenza, um, with some differences. You know, it, 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 influenza uh, typically affects the very young and the very old, and there may be some variation on, on in that pattern. Um, coronavirus, uh, this 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 coronavirus, uh, which again, you know, it's it appears to be what 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 uh, uh, infectious disease specialists and epidemiologists call a zoonosis that that it it and that, again that's not unlike influenza um, it originated in some animal species and that's still being discussed and debated et cetera and and whether that whether that virus was being cultured in this infamous you know Wuhan lab for for legitimate purposes or to some extent illegitimate purposes all that debate it does appear to have have come out of some animal population and, and cross-infected human beings. Unlike other coronaviruses, which we experience chronically every year, particularly kids, which are human coronaviruses, about 15 to 30% uh, of these viruses cause common cold flu syndromes. And occasionally, Daniel, even these viruses can cause outbreaks, particularly amongst the fra frail elderly, that look much more localized uh, than, than COVID-19. Um, but that look almost like it uh, in, in terms of being able to cause a severe and, and fatal pneumonia in frail elderly. Th those, those outbreaks have been much more isolated to specific nursing homes. They've never reached anything uh, like this. But, but overall, when we judge how, how lethal, how deadly uh, an infection like this is, uh, particularly a, a pneumonia-causing uh, infection like this, again, much overlap with influenza. We, we have to look at something called the infection fatality ratio. And, and that is simply the ratio of the number of deaths we believe were caused by the infection, particularly if they're pneumonias, um, divided by the total spectrum of infections. And here's, here's the rub, because the total spectrum of infections includes, includes this, this gigantic, you know, below the tip of the iceberg, uh, submerged body of infections that are completely, literally completely asymptomatic. Um, but of course, it also includes the obviously symptomatic, the, the, the people presenting in extremis to, to emergency rooms and winding up in the ICU, and, and unfortunately, many of them expiring from, from severe pneumonia. So that entire spectrum uh, of disease, from the literally undetectable to the obvious, um, and, and now we, we have enough data from, from across the world uh, to, to look at what that ratio is and compare it to things like seasonal flu, pandemic flu. Um, and what we're finding overall is that uh, it looks very much like, for example, the flu epidemic that hit the United States. Again, it came out of uh, came out of Europe. Uh, sorry, sorry, excuse me. Came out of out of China. Came out of kind of Hong Kong, British controlled Hong Kong at the time in 1957-58. And when that when all was said and done, it reached the United States more slowly at the, in that period. Came through the Navy, unfortunately, came into my state in Newport, um, and then spread like wildfire across the country. Uh, and it, it wound up uh, it wound up infecting about a quarter of the U.S. population. Uh, it caused 116,000 uh, fatalities, and its infection fatality ratio, when our U.S. population was about 170 million, was calculated to be about 0.26 percent. Now, when the CDC you gotta be kidding issued me. one of wait, I didn't know yeah, that. Yeah, 0.26 percent. Whoa. Right. Okay. Now, now finish right. that statement. <laughs> 
Right. So so now when the CDC and again and, and also, Daniel, because we were in a different era, you know, pros and cons. Uh, yes, obviously, less sophisticated medical care, but still re- quite reasonable. They actually developed a vaccine because it took so long to reach from Hong Kong, where the outbreak started, to the United States. They developed a vaccine. They vaccinated the elderly. They vaccinated the young, uh, which was the typical pattern. Um, it wasn't a particularly good uh, 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 vaccination match with the actual with the actual uh, you know uh, in influenza, but it did afford at least some protection. But 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 at least you know it was attempted. And even in the wake of that, so 0.26 percent. Fast forward to CDC estimates that were published around May 20th, which when you calculated the, the same ratio, the infection fatality ratio for the United States, depending on how many uh, completely asymptomatic infections you wanted to estimate or the CDC wanted to estimate, that infection fatality ratio, again, we're comparing to 0.26 percent for 1957-58, uh, the, the uh, H2N2 influenza, this, this year, it was 0.20 to 0.27%, depending on, on how many asymptomatic infections CDC was willing to infer. So very, very similar, and, and obviously com- in the complete absence of any vaccination program. Moreover, subsequent to that, so that was like around May 20th, the first week in June, India, the Indian Council of Medical Research did its own uh, what are called seroprevalence studies. So what they do is they look after some, after the population has been exposed to an infection, typically, in this, and in the case of SARS-CoV-2, it takes about three weeks to develop antibodies. Um, they, did, they, they surveyed large city areas of, of India, and based on, on, on people who could have, again, been totally asymptomatic, they, they, they determined the prevalence of antibodies. It was actually quite low at that time. Uh, but regardless, that gave them a much better denominator to look at the full gamut uh, of infections. And we can talk further. Even, even, even these seroprevalence studies to detect antibodies don't, don't nearly capture all the infections. But be that as it may, the better estimate than, you know, invasively swabbing someone's throat at the time they're actively sick and, and using that as your estimate, it's a, that is a particularly biased estimate. It's targeting people who are clearly symptomatic. Um, it doesn't even attempt to address the issue of these asymptomatic a- a- infections. But be that as it may, when they calculated in India, the Indian Council of Medical Research, they, they published their report at the beginning of June, they calculated an infection fatality ratio for this sprawling country, the largest swath of humanity in one nation, um, as, at 0.08%, which began to fall within the range of not only you know uh, epidemic pandemic flu, but seasonal flu. Seasonal uh, flu, so, wow. So it meaning that's below, so people understand, that's below 0.1 that you know that that that's even less than one in a thousand what you're talking about and i think we even see that here you know we recently had a serology test in north carolina that inferred a 0.1 um ifr and and remember when you see the 0.26 or so there's such a lopsided heterogeneous effect right that you have in some in 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 minnesota it's as much as 80 percent of deaths are in senior care facilities. Other places, it's 50, 60%. Some places, 40%. Yeah, my, state, my state of Rhode Island, it, it's running consistently over the last month at 81%. 81% consists, yeah, the new, especially the new version. So I, I said to myself, wait a minute. Everyone's talking about, oh, if you're over 60, you're dead meat. I'm thinking, well, 
even even if you're 80, I mean, if you're not in a nursing home again, where you have some of the mal care, you you have the spread, the maybe maybe possibly a high viral load, reloading and triggering, you know, and and that's certainly with the criminal you know nursing home game that Cuomo and some of these other governors played. But even without that, um, that's very seems to be a very vulnerable place. But if you're outside of that. What's the IFR for the entire nation, irrespective of your age, irrespective of your, your health status, if you're simply outside of a nursing home? And that already will get you down to closer to point one. And then you could really start looking at, well, what if you're 70 years old, but you don't really have a heart condition like my dad? You know, he's in good health. Or what if you're now, you know, like me, if you're in your 30s and you're healthy and then then you're going a decimal point, two decimal points over from that, that to me is really what's not getting out there. And like you said, we we did a whole show yesterday on this, the mounting evidence that even the serology tests are, you know, uh, not fully going below that, that, that water level, below the surface. There's an even deeper surface of those that have cross partial cross immunity or or the T cells. So I want to trend I want I want to transition that discussion into um, what you're working on, we're going to have an article out this week um, from Dr. Bostom on this, which is herd immunity. What a lot of these folks say is, all right, Daniel, I understand. You're telling me now it's much lower IFR. But here's the deal. Even a low IFR, you know, if you got to cut through 70% of the population in order to burn this out, well, that's still a lot of people dying. Now, mind you, Andy, it's not like they have an alter, a solution to that themselves. Okay, so well, what exactly is your solution under your premise? But what is your answer to why the premise of that assertion is wrong? Yeah, so so what I discovered, and again, you know, you know, full full disclosure. Yes, I've, I've I'm a trained epidemiologist, but but I'm trained, and my work has been consistently in cardiovascular disease epidemiology. So I had to get up to speed on some specifics over the last several months that pertain to infectious disease epidemiology. And one of one of the one of the ideas that I had not known about, obviously, you know, e- even in medical school, they teach you a little bit of history. So obviously, I knew about the the the, the um, remarkable development of uh, of vaccination programs, the eradication of smallpox, which uh, was celebrated in 1979, and it really was a remarkable uh, achievement. But I had no idea that the concept uh, of herd immunity, in other words, what percentage of a given population has to have resistance uh, to a disease to basically uh, confer protection and at least break the back uh, of, of an epidemic. Yeah. Um, I did not realize that that that, that conception, uh, which actually dates from the 1920s before you know, successful mass vaccination, has basically over the last you know, 50 years come to mean the herd immunity conferred by by uh, disease eradication or near eradication programs uh, under the aegis of, of mass vaccination programs. So obviously, that's a, that as it turns out, reading the original literature, um, that's a much loftier goal than the pre-vaccination era. And yet, I I believe, and what was the basis for this for this um, uh, essay that you kindly referred to is is that. Is that we really need to go to go back to that paradigm, because for for two very practical reasons. First of all, we have experienced since 2002 there was an outbreak of something called you know se- severe acute respiratory syndrome, uh, coronavirus one, SARS-CoV-1, 
and it kind of burned itself out, but it actually appeared to be a more serious disease uh, than yep. what we're experiencing now. Uh, vaccination programs will be gone and, and to this day unsuccessful. Fast forward 10 years from that, around 2012, there was something, another coronavirus, which caused a severe respiratory syndrome. Again, apparently more severe than what we're seeing now. Um, although it's hard to compare because both of these outbreaks I'm, I'm talking about were, were more limited. Um, but so that's also actually a good thing, self-limited. Um, so MERS, Middle East Respiratory Syndrome, another coronavirus. Uh, again, since 2012, no successful vaccine program. And I, and I was a little concerned in reading these papers that all different kinds of a very novel experimental approaches and, and traditional approaches were applied. And still what happened was, on the one hand, they were able to immunize some animal models. Um, but when they but they have to once they you know get some evidence and, and without boring your listeners of, of, of specific important immune responses to a candidate vaccine, they ultimately the ultimate test is to challenge the animal model with a live virus. So unfortunately, what happened in both these cases of, of SARS-CoV-1 and MERS is that, re, is that challenging the, the apparently immunized uh, animals with the virus, they didn't get bad infections. Um, so the vaccine, again, was still showing evidence of working, but, but they, the vaccine itself with the challenge from the virus caused the immune system itself to overreact, to put, to put it uh, in layman's terms, and cause complications that were as bad as if the infection had not been protected against mm. and, 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 and really caused inflammation of the lungs. And I believe that that was the problem with the development and, and even the, the application, uh, uh, let alone the application to, to humans so that we still to this, you know, as, as we're discussing now, as of this day, despite 18 years of research, there's no vaccine for either SARS-CoV-1 or, or more recently, uh, Middle East Respiratory Syndrome. So with that in mind, I went back and said, well, hey, you know, I mean, I, I, I hope there's some safe and effective vaccine yeah. developed. Um, it but, does but, take but a the while, notion, the other issue. But, but, but the notion that, you know, we're going to be like, hey, wear a diaper on your face in perpetuity in the 90-degree heat and, uh, you know, lock this down, live like this until there's a vaccine, you're like, well, wait a minute. I mean, yeah. at best, well, that's well, going to be a long just, time. Yeah. I, look, we're all hopeful that something safe and efficacious would be developed, and we can, we can, but we do also have to discuss who's that going to be applied to, even if it is safe and efficacious. Um, but, but beyond that, um, you know, what if it, if it doesn't come about? Uh, and, and so going back to the original conception of herd immunity, it turns out um, that, you know, we when again, getting back to the vaccine model, um, I hate to do math to people, but this is real simple stuff. There's something there's something called the R zero, which simply means the, you know, the spreadability of the disease. Like uh, does, does, does a does a does a person who's infected spread it to just one other or two others or three others on, you know, add in ad infinitum. How many does it spread? So 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 this simple equation to, to gauge what the threshold you need for herd immunity is the R zero minus one divided by the R zero. So give you a simple case that has been applied to SARS CoV two, where they say the R zero is three. Uh, and they say, so in other words, basically each each infected person 
spreads it universally to three others, and, and everyone's equally susceptible. These are all the assumptions which are questionable, yeah. but from the R0 to everything else I just said. But let's just apply that. So that would be R03 minus 1 uh, is 2 divided by 3, which gives you 67%. And that is what you will routinely see um, quoted as, oh, we have to get at least, you know, approximately 70% herd immunity. And again, this is a disease eradication or near eradication paradigm as applied to mass vaccination programs. When you go back to the original literature from the 1920s, they pointed out all these things about, well, you know, not everyone is so susceptible. Uh, not, not all diseases spread the same way. There are isolated populations. There are exposed populations. There, you know. I just want to explain, like, to my audience, this is what I was referring to yesterday when I was talking about a heterogeneous versus a homogeneous um, threat from a virus. This one's very heterogeneous because it's extremely lopsided. It's almost like a nursing home thing at its core, a little bit of an orbit around that for older, sicker people to a certain extent. So it's both in terms of how severe it is, but also who it affects is very very heterogeneous because we're seeing this brick wall. Could you explain, am I right in my contrast, in order to contrast what's not a respiratory type of flu-like virus like SARS-CoV-2, but let's talk about chicken pox and um, measles. My understanding is those things are really um, contagious. You get that it's going to spread to everyone uniformly. I remember when I got chicken pox, everyone, all the kids got it together, whereas now you're seeing husband and wives, you know, one will get it, one won't. Shipmates where, you know, one person will get it, one won't, even though they're in the same cabin. Is that what you mean when you're saying that this is a little different type of virus that won't have to spread as uniformly to achieve herd immunity? Yes, yes. And actually, to give you a more dramatic example, let's go back to to the very rational reason why a smallpox eradication was such a priority and took so long and but was aggressively pursued for for almost a century until it was finally accomplished in in 1979. Smallpox has an R0 of, of about six, or some people say even higher. So each person infects six others. And it's it's about thirty percent lethal, uh, truly lethal, um, and 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 causes you know severe, as 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 you probably know or, or people know the small the, the the severe scarring et cetera of those of those who who survive which is a, which is very stigmatic and 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 uh, you know uh, isolating, um, but but uh, in that case you, you would you would need to to um, to immunize about 80% plus of, of the population. And so, so it had to be done through vaccination. The, the, other, the other factor that contributes to heterogeneity is, is it, give, look, at, look, at the, look at the two different persons. Compare, for example, a healthcare worker who has a family, maybe an extended family, uh, and, and they have a much greater potential to infect others versus a single person working alone from home. And, and, and so there's many factors that contribute to this variability. But the bottom line is, when 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 now um, epidemiologists and modelers are looking at, whoa, what if we consider all this heterogeneity and go back to 
a concept of, of the threshold, which is not to eradicate the disease, but just to break its, its, its ability to spread like wildfire, they're now coming down to perhaps as few as 10 to 20% of individuals need to be immune uh, to, to, to confer herd immunity. And, and, and there, but there are more conservative estimates that basically range from from uh, about 20 to 40 percent and, yeah. and as well, which, which as clearly which clearly in places like Lombardy or New York, the virus was able to cut. There was more airspace before it hit that brick wall that we seem to be seeing where the virus it's not that it goes away. And like you're saying, it's not eradication, but it's like I think this Italian doctor that a lot of people are quoting. It's in a lot of news articles. Um, where he said it was like a vicious lion in March and April. It's not that he's not seeing it now. It's that right now the same patients, not just the fact that it seems to be getting younger people, but even among the 80 and 90-year-olds, he said, whereas before they'd be half in the grave when he would see them in that with that iteration, now they're sit, they're able to sit up and even talk while he's treating them. And I think that's what Ron DeSantis, the governor of Florida, was talking about for the most part. And what I've been writing about that we're seeing aside from the border issue, because Mexico got the first iteration much later. And it seems like we reimported a certain amount of that. So doesn't this all tie back into the heterogeneous nature of it and the herd immunity of it that maybe some places will need like maybe New York City, maybe we'll need 30 to 40 percent. Maybe some places will need 15 uh 20 maybe some places in asia will need two three percent like we're seeing in japan like almost no you know very few got it even in a serology test because of the cross immunity of coronaviruses and then there's other things that we're we're not really able to to even uh uh, because so many of these estimates are based on on sort of the standard you know do you develop antibodies that we can pick up that neutralize the, the virus. And, and, and there are, there are a whole host of immune responses from very basic things like the, the lysozyme in your saliva, the acid in your stomach, to, to much more sophisticated things like another class of, of immunologic cells called T cells that can, that can attack the virus. But these are, these are not picked up um, they have to do more sophisticated uh, blood testing to pick up these responses. And we're now seeing from studies of, of exposed and unexposed populations uh, that T cell immunity uh, can be uh, very, very prevalent in people who don't have evidence of the antibodies and yet would be, would be very well protected against, against uh, SARS-CoV-2. Mm. And this whole phenomenon, the other, the other reason that that I'm leery about about immunization programs or waiting, certainly waiting for immunization yeah. programs and, and, and penalizing kids is how remarkably uh, well kids have done with, with SARS-CoV-2 compared even to this year, year's relatively mild seasonal flu. Yes. You know, the, the best estimate that 174 I've seen, fatalities data, or something? Well, yeah, but, but, but comparative data for, for the U.S., was published uh, in in a in a pediatric infectious disease epidemiology journal, which which showed that through the the beginning of May, uh, the, the kids in the United States, so newborn zero to fourteen years old, were seven times more likely this year to die from this year's seasonal flu than from COVID nineteen. Wow. So again, you you are saying that 
Um, one one study of the data found they, they were seven times that as children um, were seven times more likely to die from this year's relatively mild flu, unlike 2018, say, than SARS-CoV-2. So, so, so again, just take it from there, more information just to pump my audience with why we're seeing this is not a threat to kids. But I also want you to answer the following question, too, when you discuss the pediatric observations. And that is, a lot of people, I think, are getting the fact that kids really aren't at risk. But then what people have trouble understanding is the second half of it, that them going to school and being together is not a threat to adults because we really are not seeing um, child transmission. And it, there's tons of studies on that, but people, I think, to a layman, it doesn't make sense. Like, why not? I mean, you get it or not. Okay, you want to say they don't get it as often, I understand, and it's not going to harm them, but can't they be a threat that if it, you know, to them it's asymptomatic or mild, mildly symptomatic, but they'll they'll uh, go and spread it to their grandparent and kill them? Why why is that not a problem? Okay, so so two things. So so just getting back to a point I'd like to emphasize is that kids are frequently infected, get colds, mild mild at worst mild flus from human coronaviruses, and 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 apparently get them more commonly than adults. But now it turns out. Um, and this had been poo-pooed for a while, Dan, unfortunately, that human coronavirus infections that, that are very common, uh, up to 30% of colds per year, um, and, and, and often and more, and, and more predominant in kids, give them cross-reactive immunity at some level to, to SARS-CoV-2. Um, and, and that could, could help explain why they're, why they're doing better with this than they are even with the seasonal flu this year. So direct comparison, uh, seven times more likely this year, uh, kids in America, you know, age, age newborns to 14-year-olds to die uh, uh, from the flu versus coronavirus, sevenfold increased risk flu versus coronavirus this year. Um, so, but the point is that, you know, kids who are pretty have this robust immunity apparently to 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 SARS-CoV-2 there's a flip side to that and again it gets back in certain ways to the concept of herd immunity which is that they are much less infectious and we've seen this borne out there was a remarkable uh, um, uh, uh, what they call these these tracing studies that was these contact tracing studies that was done of a small outbreak of all places in the French Alps, um, and a, a child was one of the infect persons infected by 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 a Brit that was vacationing there, and then they had to contact trace this child. It was a, a ten year old, I believe, or nine year old, and the child they could track roughly 140 contacts. Not a single one did this child infect, um, and repeatedly all over the world, we're seeing uh, much lower. Uh, transmissibility. So, so two positive things. Um, mercifully, much much less severe disease if it's if if ch children, particularly young children, get it at all. And then and then the other benefit is less transmissibility. So you could certainly say that, for heaven's sake, you know, it was really penalizing you know grades kindergarten to six to keep these kids out of school. And if there was a concern uh, about teachers, particularly teachers that were that were older. Uh, that had comorbid conditions. Well, then some of those teachers teachers could have been excused, could have given their uh, teaching plans remotely, and had teaching assistants in class. But don't, but don't penalize all the children. Exactly, exactly. It, it, made, it made no sense, and 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 that's 
that's I think a big important point there with kids. Um, is is it that is this closely related to asymptomatic even among adults? That it seems like contrary to what the media was saying, several studies with hard data and tracing have shown that we're not seeing that much spread among those that truly were asymptomatic and remained asymptomatic. Does that make sense to you? Yeah, it does. It does. And the, I mean, you know, again, it's very difficult to rely upon who for anything. They're, they're constantly waffling. And, and then, of course, there's the whole sort of nefarious connection uh, between the head of who and, and the communist Chinese government. But but they still have some decent scientists there. And and the actual scientists, uh, you know, have, have come out with with um, with uh, support studies that support the notion that, you know, the the the, the asymptomatic transition trans- uh, transmission issue was really blown out of proportion that 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 logically it's it's the people who are very sick who are actively infectious who are really the vehicles to spread this disease yeah yeah i mean that that's what we're seeing almost like we're seeing with the antibodies there's almost a direct correlation with the severity uh the the more severe you severely you present like the ones with um trouble breathing and everything they really produced uh they had high levels of titers whereas the ones that were more mild they wouldn't last as long or didn't have them as much and then the asymptomatic again they found that they didn't even have them so that's how we know that the serology tests are not picking them up um more on just again i'm just trying to run the gambit here a lot of the questions that that people have and just don't understand about the way that this works the asymptomatic thing is really very puzzling to most people I've heard of it as a, as a layman that doesn't know anything about, you know, medicine. I've only heard about it for strep throat. You know, I've had kids. So they say infants could theoretically get it, but they don't test them because they're they're asymptomatic. That's the only time I've really ever heard of that concept. But what is the deal with a virus that could run the gambit from some people? It's like, you know, some of these severe cases they saw in New York City. It just ate away at people's lungs, um, almost like a cancer but then what is it 70 80% according to a lot of studies are downright asymptomatic when do we ever find such a thing and is the reason for that because of this partial cross immunity that people are maybe they're they're getting maybe not T8 cells but the T4 helper cells that maybe don't completely ward it off so you could they could test positive in a, in a PCR test, but ultimately it's going to be enough to ward off the symptoms. Is that what we're seeing here? Well, I, yeah, I, I think, I think there's a, there's a very, people have different life histories and different exposures. Uh, I'll give you, I think even a more striking example of how, you know, how variable, how heterogeneous it can be. Um, human coronaviruses that, you know, cause this cold flu syndrome, about 15 to 30% of common colds, um, are well known, and yet in 2006, uh, uh, an outbreak turned deadly in a in a British Columbia nursing home of a common cold causing uh, coronavirus. It almost looked like SARS, the the the, the pathology. Um, now it was limited to a nursing home, but but there have been sporadic outbreaks like this amongst the frail elderly, where of course you know these 
sort of quote unquote control population are their caregivers and the caregivers get what you would expect, you know, like a child would get. They get, they get a cold basically, whereas it, it's deadly. And, and, and then look, even within the population, the elderly frail, there's tremendous variability there. So one, one, one could say, well, uh, maybe some of these, for whatever the reasons were, some of the people housed that, that, that had the worst outcome um, had not had uh, exposure or, or recent exposure, uh, and, and it just hit them like a tidal wave. Whereas, whereas some of their elderly, you know, companions, uh, you know, might might have had a milder form of it the the year or, or the seasonal uh, cold flu season before, and and were still immune. So there's so much there's so much variability to this that that this you know wide spectrum that we're seeing now, and and with the with the obsessive focus on 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 COVID nineteen, people are being exposed to things that. You know, in, infectious disease uh, specialists and epidemiologists and just physicians in general, you know, see all the time that that, that, that disease has has this has this tremendous spectrum of of of, of seriousness, uh, and it's just it's just it's just really kind of boilerplate in medicine. Isn't this kind of like you're saying endemic of flu-like respiratory viruses in general? Um, yes, like, yes. Like, and, including things that scare the wits out of people. So, for example, if you recall, I mean, these things come and go with SARS COVID, and 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 some of it, unfortunately, it's really unfortunate. No, but is, like H one N one in two thousand nine, didn't H one N one wasn't that part of the story that it didn't turn out to be as bad as they thought because there was a partial cross immunity to H one N ones. Yes, yes, oh, particularly amongst the. In other words, it. It, 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 recent generations of kids were more susceptible than the elderly in this case. The opposite, opposite so yeah. It's, so it's too. Um, it, it, because because the elderly had had been through enough cycles of flu to to have some cross immunity from previous uh, uh, infestations. But no, but the point I wanted to make, Dan, about some of the hysteria. And, and this goes back to kids and SARS and, and COVID-19 is, you know, if, if you recall, they, these are like flash in the pan things. Oh, kids are getting this, uh, this uh, including coronary artery, heart artery, infl- inflammatory condition, you know, Kawasaki's disease. Yes, Again, yes. touted as being unique to COVID-19. Well, it's hardly unique to COVID-19. All respiratory viruses, basically, and 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 respiratory bacteria causing infection. Wait, wait a minute! Wait a minute! Whatever happened to that? Come to think of it, yeah. that was the yeah. latest hotness. Yeah, yeah. I, yeah. I even yeah. forgot well, because, about it because 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 ultimately sanity and honesty and good <laughs> clinical practice prevail, and they say, wait a minute, just look at this vast body of literature. Look at our clinical experience. A whole gamut of infections, particularly infections that 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 affect the respiratory tract, are capable of causing this syndrome. And it 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 it, it turned out that clinically, even in contact in in the case of of COVID nineteen, it was a relatively reversible and benign syndrome. And then and then, but prior to that, was the idea that somehow um, you know people between the age of thirty and fifty where there's a there's a rate of stroke in those people, but it's obviously much lower than than in the elderly. Um, they, oh, there was a case cluster presenting to Mount Sinai Hospital, you know, way way beyond normal. And and take a step back and see that since Sigmund Freud, when he actually did medicine, uh, the the association between respiratory diseases, infections, and stroke is is very well established. And again, it's all kinds of respiratory infections, and indeed infection overall 
causes changes in the clotting system that can predispose to, to strokes and heart attacks. So in the middle of an outbreak of this or any other infection, you might see a transient blip in strokes and heart attacks. And, and, and so, you know, some of it is naivete, some of it is agenda, uh, but, you know, these things have come and gone over the last several months. And again, I, I would say like a contrast from polio, chickenpox, measles, where that really seemed to just, it gets who it gets. It kind of, um, it was much more uniform um, if it's around and you go into that pocket where the aerosols are spreading, you're going to get it. Um, there's not much of a variance, or at least that's what well, I and, and, and also, even with polio, which clearly affected uh, young people disproportionately, children disproportionately, and, 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 and stoked terror in, in, in the 1950s, there, there was very, very open, honest discussion and debate about closing schools. And and typically the worst, the worst that was done. And remember, this is a this is a this is a, a deadly or crippling illness that affected that really targeted children. The worst that was done is that school openings would be delayed by a few weeks. I mean, I was reading the historical yeah. newspapers yeah. In, in, you know, in my area, in, in, in New England and Rhode Island. And, 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 and there'd be debates about even doing that. And, and often it was the parents that wanted their kids back in school. And they said, and they would make common sense arguments like, well, look, you know, our kids have been playing with other kids, you know, all summer long, uh, you know, uh, and or they've been they've been exposed. Even, you know, if, if they haven't been playing, you know, what 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 is what's going to be worse at, at school? You know, and, and what are the effects of keeping them out of school? And and so if if there were delays and, 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 and transmission was felt to have passed, you know, more. In, in the summer, they would quickly get the kids back in school in, in the fall with, with, a, with, frankly, a much more deadly, certainly for children, uh, disease and a much more disabling disease. And yet here we are. We didn't close schools in the 2000 or 2018 flu epidemics, um, yet this is one-seventh of the lethality of this year's mild flu season, and which we didn't close school for, of course, but we closed for this. My kids' camps are closed um, even when this is on the down, um, truly unbelievable, man, this is really engaging. I have so many other questions. We're not going to really have time to get to most of them, but I want you to go back to this vaccine thing. So what are some of your concerns? Obviously we're saying a, we don't need to achieve as much as we think we do in terms of, um, you know, how many people have to get it. Also, also, the floor is higher, too, because more people indeed have already gotten it. So it's, you know, we're closer to that goal than we think. Number two, obviously, you know, it's very unlikely we're going to get it soon. But my question to you is, what should people be thinking in the following scenario? If it plays out like SARS-CoV-1, then there's nothing. There's nothing even advertised. But what are some of your concerns about the politics and rush? If we somehow hear... Early next year, ah, we got a vaccine. Now, we certainly want that. We want that goal. But what are some of the concerns to think about, about where they're coming from and where they're headed with that vaccine? Well, so first of all, you know, uh, above all, do no harm. So is it truly safe uh, to the best of their ability? And, and by that, I mean that, that those scenarios that I described to you with the earlier vaccines for SARS-CoV-1 and, and for MERS, where vaccines looked effective in animal models 
And it, it was only at the point of a viral challenge that they saw people develop this this hyperreactive immune response, which was just as damaging in as the virus. In, in, in not people, animals reacted. Um, are they going to you know get past that bar of safety? That that would be concern number one. And and let's let's assume let's assume they do, and 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 they. But it takes a while to even see that in in, in people. But let, but but benefit of the doubt. Let's assume let's assume they do. Is is this going to be now compulsory? Because th- that's another whole, uh, uh, you know, uh, rights issue. Uh, be- because, for example, pneumococcal pneumonia is still a-, a very serious illness, and it also causes a serious meningitis. And yet, you know, we don't we don't require that people even people 65 and above get it. It's recommended. And so I could see, for example, that. Nursing homes have a right to say, "Look, you know, it's we have a safe, effective vaccine. Um, if 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 we're going to house your parent, et cetera, your relative, um, they're going to have to be vaccinated. Um, I, 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 that that's that's a condition, as opposed to saying blanket every 65 year old plus has to be vaccinated in this in this country. I, I mean, that I have a real issue with. Well, no, the they're, they're going to say that, everyone has to get it. I don't think they're going to put an yeah, age well, limit. That, that, that's, that's even worse. That's even worse because because clearly we can now identify who the so going back to my pneumococcal pneumonia example. So it's recommended again, not required, recommended. Uh, you know, but but your, I'm saying what would be your, the downside? What would be the downside of it? Aside from a liberty yeah, issue. It, yeah, um, I think I think the downside might be that that's when you're really going to increase the possibility of, of, of very adverse effects. Uh, for for a disease that that is targeted, uh, and and so that that would that mm. would really be my concern. And you're saying what? Because it's just um, too rushed. Exactly, exactly. That that there may be other things that develop beyond this pneumonitis that that we don't even know about. Um, and and also uh, we we don't we don't really you know look at flu shots. They help. It's useful. They don't they don't appear, they appear to be relatively benign. Um, but, but they, we still get, we still get these outbreaks and what are we going to do then? Uh, you know, and, and then the, and the other issue is that, that, that I, I don't see why children other than children with, uh, you know, specific problems that put them at super high risk beyond normal, uh, would need to be vaccinated at all. I, I, I don't, I don't see why that would be a, you know, a necessary thing to do. Um, and, and so I, I have a lot, I have a lot of, a lot of basic questions about what the strategy uh, is is going to be. Again, I am I am more comfortable if it if it appears to be safe, and you can't hold them to a hundred percent safety. Sure, I am. I I don't have a problem with 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 recommending uh, uh, or to a certain extent mandating the institutionalized elderly get it, uh, or or and and then making it voluntary for people that that feel that they are at high risk or that, you know, clearly are at high risk uh, with other less than 65, not, not institutionalized who have high risk conditions and, and, and look at an individual risk benefit ratio. But the idea of mandating the whole population for something like this, for heaven's sake, then that's the, that's the point. This is not smallpox. We know that now we, <laughs> we don't have to go to a disease eradication model for something that has a 30% lethality rate. 
Exactly. I mean, that that's the bottom line. They keep obfuscating that fact, which just drives me nuts. And also just connected to that is the fact that our government has not really put out and advertised a, a risk stratified chart that people could truly understand. Because what, what, what scares me is that I know so many people that are seniors or whatever, and without any regard for exactly what is your threat assessment, lock them down. Now, you could do that for a month or two, but there's atrophy, there's mental illness, there's a lot of serious problems with what they're doing to every type of senior, and not all um, risks are created equal. So what I want to ask you, and I just thought of that because I just realized that your expertise is in heart conditions, cardiovascular so the the one thing I'm seeing is that on every data dump, any state or you know study or you know uh, European countries data, they all show that the number one comorbidity is actually not pulmonary issues but cardiovascular. Now, a lot of people above a certain age have some degree of a heart condition. Could you explain to our audience? What degree of hypertension, what degree of heart condition is and is not a significant risk? Because that's going to really matter to a lot of people. Right, right. So, so at this point, you know, if you if you were to look at again, just just uh, from the broader point of view, the the people that that appear to be at high highest risk, um, it's it's the elderly. So what's so the elderly have both disease of the blood vessels and then disease of, of, of the pumping function. Um, and, you know, I think it, it could be that, that those that have mild uh, what's called congestive heart failure uh, may be at increased risk. And on top of that, then it's not just the, the heart and lungs, you know, are so interconnected, but the, the virus itself um, in about 10 to 15% of cases, particularly those, that we're getting really septic, getting getting just you know multi-organ system involvement. The virus is all over the place. Uh, th- they had they had evidence independently of, of of developing heart failure. So if you superimpose something that's capable of causing you know mild to, to not so mild heart failure on a population that already is at risk of heart failure or, or that has clinical or subclinical heart failure, that that could really up up the risk. Um, and and so I think you know that's that's part that's part of what's going on what's going on, um, and uh, but, but again the, the other question has become that so many of the deaths uh, in 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 COVID nineteen have occurred amongst people who may have been um, dying from to use our example congestive heart failure, and. Sure, it's possible that that a that a that a the the COVID infection uh, was the proximate cause of this that tipped them over. But it's also because you know this was this was done in such a haphazard way and and with a lot of motivations that are that are venal. Uh, honestly, I mean reimbursement, et cetera. It's very hard to distinguish. Yet it may be eventually um, people who simply were positive for for COVID nineteen, but but went ahead and died of of, of old age related myocardial infarctions, heart attacks, or congestive heart failure. It's very hard to sort that out. It, it truly is. Um, and then there's been a lot of egregious violations where it's obvious that that the that the positivity was was clearly tangential to the disease process, which actually killed these unfortunate people. Yeah, I mean, but but my understanding was if you're just a guy like anyone over 55, 
most people take some sort of blood pressure medication. So if that's all it is, my understanding was you weren't really that much at risk. No. Is that true? Exactly. 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 There's there's no yeah, there's there's no firm evidence that that a person who simply had, you know, isolated hypertension uh, is 55 years old is at is at great risk for SARS-CoV-2. No. No, that's just not true. I mean, because clearly um, a lot of people are I, I worried mean, about that. Yeah, I, I, no, there's really no evidence for that. I, I, I mean, um, in fact, uh, uh, Ioannidis early analysis back at the, you know, there were enough, there were a lot of cases already, but it was, it was by mid-April. Uh, I think he found that only, that less than one percent of those uh, under 65 um, who, who didn't have, and this is major comorbidities, uh, died from SARS-CoV-2. And, and so that wouldn't count. I mean, having having you know one blood blood pressure medicine controlled hypertension wouldn't count as a major morbidity. Okay, I mean, yeah, that that's something people need to know. We're we're just about out of time. <clears throat> I want to close with one big question that's really grating on my nerves, and that's the medical community. What I can't understand is what has happened to your profession. Are there more people with sanity that are just undocumented and they're quiet um, and they don't want to get their heads chopped off or short does everyone is, drink the Kool-Aid? Short answer is yes. Short answer <laughs> is yes. Yeah. I, 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 I mean, you know, it's very different when you looking at the advocates on one side or, or another, you know, pe- people that are trying to damp down the hysteria, people that are for whatever reasons playing it up and they're in the, within the medical community. And then, you know, when, when, um, when my son uh, graduated from high school, happened to go to a party and there were, you know, a number of other physicians there, including an orthopedist, et cetera, and just talking calmly and rationally about what they're seeing. Um, I, I, I think there's a lot less uh, sort of self-serving hysteria, shall we call it, uh, amongst the amongst the non-academics. Uh, in, in the academy, it's 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 absolutely awful, uh, and and it and it's it's at the highest levels that that I actually found quite shocking. For example, people promoting this this uh, pediatric uh, panic porn, whether it's about Kawasaki disease, yep. uh, other things, or, or getting into the slightly older age group, you know, premature stroke, and and and, and simply ignoring. Um, you know, historical medical historical evidence that you know literally dates back to the to the late nineteenth century about observations of these yeah. phenomena. That, that, that's what bothers me. That it's like we threw out a hundred years of microbiology, virology, epidemiology, and you know, everyone. It seems like the medical community intuitively was believed what I was putting out in January, February, March, somewhere in mid March. The mixture of Lombardi, some of the images, a lack of understanding of what went on there, and then it started in New York. And, you know, that's when it became extremely political. Everyone panicked. And but then, you know, afterwards, it kind of, you know, became clear again. It was just with a couple of deviations and nuances. It was everything we thought it was very widespread. Now we find out from the Penn State study yesterday, it's even more widespread than anyone would have would have thought. Therefore, much less deadly. And yet it just it it almost seems to me that it's the media directing the medical community. It's not like that they're coming to this stuff on their own based on their own conclusions of research. It's more that, okay, the media is like, we need to wear a mask. And all of them are like, yes, wear a mask. We need to do this. It's like 
Really? I mean, well, well I, I would say, I would say, I would say there's a back and forth. Uh, in other words, uh, the, the, you know, the premature stroke phenomenon from Mount Sinai, the, the, the Kawasaki's disease uh, cluster, uh, th- those were, those were investigator initiated, shall I say, rushing to the, to the, to the New York times or the Washington post journals of medicine. You, you, you know, th- that's how that worked. Dan. it wasn't, it wasn't, uh, you know, you can't you can't just blame the journalists and the, the, the medical cases. deep state. And, and, well, whatever it is, uh, you know, yes, and 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 yeah, and, and and look, you know, I'm open. I'm a political conservative, um, but you know, these people are are all on the left to the hard left. Uh, they 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 deny it, except of course you simply have to go to their Twitter accounts, uh, <laughs> full of full of vit, this, the the predictable vitriol you know you you can imagine, um, and and yet you know they're they're never called out that they're doing these things for political reasons. That's what bothers me, and and again, like I'm very transparent too. I mean, that's the name of the show. Everyone knows I'm a conservative. But, you know, I even though I'm a conservative, I do have journalistic intrigue. I'm like, hey, here's some observations. Don't we want to learn more about the virus? And, and again, I mean, I challenge anyone liberal or conservative. We do have some liberals in the audience to go back, listen to the show, and you'll see it's really very engaging. A lot of information that's not even right or left. It's just a matter of, hey, let's not run away with certain premises. Let's study them. Um, we're making huge decisions based off of, um, you know, just certain very unverified uh, speculative models. And then when we have hard data conflicting with models, we still go with the models. It's just bizarre. Um, closing, I, I, yeah. I think someone who's been outstanding on, on this is, has been Professor John Ioannidis from, from, from Stanford, who, who is a man of the left. I, I, I mean, but, but, but he, you know, he, he, sort of compartmentalized in a way that that I find admirable. He was and, always out of the just, box and and I think he was yeah. he was lauded for that whereas now obviously he's may as well be like you and me uh because right. he's but not, he isn't. That's the that's the tragedy of it Dan. He's 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 a political liberal. I I I mean he, he, I'm sure he will always be that way. But but he he's one of the rare species now uh it, it, sadly even in my field that that is is able to separate the politics from the science. No, exactly. I mean, because when politics becomes a religion, well, you're always going to go with your religious beliefs. Um, just as a parting shot here, we got to run. Where do you see things headed now? Um, is it normal that you would have a virus evolve to kind of switch gears, go younger, less viral load, as as some are observing? Do you buy that? Um, what's the what 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 is the research from past respiratory viruses in terms of you know a second iteration a second wave how it tends to work and why is it that everyone keeps citing the spanish flu as a precedent for a second wave being worse yeah i i i honestly again you know full disclosure coming coming from cardiovascular disease epidemiology uh, a lot of a lot of this is new to me but but i can tell you the evidence that's uh, amassing, you know, day by day in front of me that I am paying close attention to um, doesn't doesn't suggest anything like like uh, uh, than than the previous experience with with uh, with SARS-CoV-1 and MERS uh, and MERS. Uh, and let's not poo poo them because those were those were serious, you know, certainly in terms of what we know about infection or case fatality ratios worse than this. They burn themselves out. 
they burn themselves out. And, and so I, I, I think that's, uh, I, I'm certainly hoping, but, but it does look like that's a lot of what we're seeing here. I mean, Europe hasn't come up with any panaceas, but it's burned itself out. You know, it's pretty clear. Um, and, and I'm, you know, we, we are more of a sprawling and diverse country than, 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 than any place in Europe. It may take a little longer. It's, it's going to take um, longer for sure. Yeah. And we have the problem that you pointed out very, I think very importantly about, well, you know, if we, if, we, if it's kind of burned out here and then we reintroduce it from, you know, from, from the Southern hemisphere, what's that going to do? You know? No, exactly. I mean, Europe, I don't think they, they don't have a dynamic like that. They kept their borders closed and they don't have as much of a, of a wide land border. Um, so that is, I mean, it makes sense. And, and, and again, I mean, this is open source stuff. We'll cover that more tomorrow. Look, doctor, thanks so much for joining us. We got to have you back again. You have an open invitation again. Um, he's going to have a very important article coming out on the herd immunity threshold, how far we really have to go. You'll be surprised. It's not what, uh, the panic porn lobby is saying. We are out of time, folks. Stay knowledgeable, stay empowered. We'll see you again tomorrow. 